And welcome to the Range Project Podcast. My name is Chris McGrory, and I started this podcast while an undergrad on the baseball team at Harvard as a way to learn from the amazing people around me. And I'm still looking to learn what my guests do, but more importantly, how they do it. I want the routines and tactics they use, plus the mental frameworks they have, so you and I can apply them in our own lives. And today, I was lucky to talk with a super cool guy, Jake Gronsky. So Jake played minor league baseball in the St. Louis Cardinals organization, but has since become an author featured on ESPN, Best American Sports Writing, and Fox Sports, and more. And his first book, A Short Season, tells the story of Josiah Vieira, a child battling a terminal genetic disease that rapidly accelerates aging and how his positivity and resilience inspired change in his grandfather and throughout the entire St. Louis Cardinals baseball organization. So I read that 2018 SEPA book of the year and just had to reach out. Then I read his shorter pieces online and learned he is thoughtful about life and particularly his transition from an identity wrapped up as a baseball player to life after the sport. And as you might know, I just graduated college this spring, so this topic is definitely top of mind, but it's also applicable to just about anyone. So in this conversation, we dive deep into why following your passion isn't the best advice, and Jake gives really tactical advice on what to do instead. Then we talk about the importance of stability in a day job to give you freedom to take the necessary risks in your other projects. Then Jake gives a rundown of his own daily routine, starting at 5.30, as a web growth consultant by day and writer by night. We wrap up with what Jake is currently working on, fiction, and particularly romance. He's a big proponent of men reading romance, with recommendations and why fiction is just as important in the world to starting conversations and uncovering truths. So there's a lot of thoughtful, thoughtful energy in this one. So please enjoy Jake Gronsky. One, two, three, do it. Jake, how you doing? Chris, thanks for having me. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm wonderful. And I first want to say, well, first, thank you for helping bring the life and stories of Josiah Vieira and Dave Bonner into the world, which I'm sure we'll maybe Dude. get into today. Go ahead. No, thank you so much for for saying that. Like, like that story meant way more to me, I think, than than really anything else. I said if if the readers were able to get half of what I got from working on that project, then it would be all worth it. I mean, Josiah and Dave are two of the greatest human beings I've ever I've ever been around, and people that have really impacted my life. So writing that was very cathartic for me. And, uh, and no, I, I appreciate you reading that and, and sharing Josiah's story. Yeah. I shot you an email halfway through reading that. Um, and for those who want to pick up a short season, the second half is when you'll get really, um, reflective, I'd say. <laughs> so that was at least my experience. I was like, wow, I was fired up to email you halfway through, but also thank you for responding to a cold email. I really appreciate that. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's a great email. You're talking about something that I've that I've written and something that I that I was passionate about. I, I appreciate you reaching out and, and having me here. So uh, couldn't be happier. So this one will be fun. And I'd love to start with a name that I've come across in my research. And that's Dr. Chad Dell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dr. So Dell. In, in one interview, I believe I heard he simply told you, I like the way you write. And now that's, that's a lot. That's a lot for like, whatever, a 20 year old, 18 year old college kid. Can you tell me like, right. tell the, me and who, and the people who Dr. Dell is and what about him made you take one of his classes every year? Okay. So Dr. Dell is the person that everyone needs in their corner. And if you look back in your life of anything that you've accomplished or anything that you've done, you probably will find a Dr. Dell. Now he, he asked me today to call him Chad, but he, he he's Dr. Dell. Yeah, that, Always that, will it. be. So I was a, I was a freshman in college and I was taking a writing course. I, I studied, uh, you know, communication and writing and he was one of the professors and all he said like, like you mentioned, after this is after the, the first semester, he said, I like the way you write. All I ask, I don't know what you're going to do. I, I, I don't know what you want to do. Just take one of my courses every semester. And he, he taught uh, all writing through. And I was like, all right, cool. And, you know, I was an 18 year old freshman, only focused on baseball, right? I, I did nothing else other than baseball. I thought of myself as only a baseball player. I was at college strictly to then go to pro ball, had no other value other than that. And I was like, great. I got like writing. Why not? Never thought anything of it. So four years of taking just one of his courses every single semester in writing became this, uh, I would say a, a release from baseball. And I didn't even realize it because I was just doing his assignments, getting them done and, and, and things were going, uh, as planned, if you will. And at the end of my four years, and Dr. Dell, Chad, if you will, uh, he, he, he never really asked me about baseball, right? I mean, he, he knew I played baseball, but he never asked about the relationship. And after, after we graduated and, and I, was, I was heading off to, to do baseball things, uh, we met. And all he said was, again, after four years, man, is a few words, you know, still packs his lunch every day going to work. And, and I really appreciate that about him. Uh, just don't stop writing. He's like, I, I don't know what you're going to do. Like, similar to how he said, like, I don't know what you're going to do in college. Like, I'm not trying to tell you what to do with your life. Just don't stop writing. And I was like, sure, like, that's fine. But like, I'm a baseball player. And it was funny. Like, he introduced me to literary agents. He introduced me to people in the publishing world because, you know, now looking back on it, he saw something inside of me that, that I didn't see yet. Uh, I thought writing was a fun thing to do. And he saw it as something that, that I could actually uh, really craft and hone. And, and, uh, so from that, uh, I kept writing, I kept trying to study writing. That's the key. It's not just about writing. I think people get that mixed up, but trying to study writing and, uh, and, you know, from that, I, I've always taken the lessons that like he's taught me. And I've always gone back to those when I've, when I've struggled and we still actually keep in touch today with writing. So Dr. Dell, is the the person that I think believed in my writing before I even knew, or I even believed in my own writing. So someone like him, like I, I'm, I'm so grateful for him. Uh, but it, it, it's it's funny to see where 
people will find that Dr. Dell's in your life if you look hard enough and you're willing to to actually see it. So uh, he's he's a huge inspiration uh, in my writing. Thank you for giving a, a deep dive on Dr. Dell because I don't know that that's a it says a lot about a professor to come back semester after semester like he was doing yeah something he didn't right. need to do that you know he really didn't need to do any of that and and again it's not like he was trying to like toot my own horn and get me to like him like he just said just take one of my classes because he he thought it'd be beneficial and he's a very uh, you know he's such a normal guy just a normal person that if you would walk by him on the street you wouldn't even notice him right so we, we think of these like mentors as these like like these like Sherpas that like, yeah, these yeah, sages. Like, yeah. You know. We have the, this, this crazy idea of what a mentor should be or, or who someone that could influence you should be when realistically it's someone that is standing right next to you that you would pass by if you didn't stop and, and say, hello and you wouldn't even think about it. Right. Like Chad Dell, people would, Oh, professor Dell, Dr. Dell and move on. And every single student did that. And I was one of them. You know, and, and then after four years, it finally hit me of like, oh, my gosh, this is the guy. And, and that means more to me. There's just the fact that he believed in me really helps in the sense of if that dude believed in me when I was 18 and could hardly write, you know, now that I'm growing into my own in writing, then, you know, what else is there? I mean, I, and it's funny. God, I hate him, too, because I finally you know, I finally had a, a book, you know, be published and, and, and whatnot and started to write that, that certain articles and certain stories that were getting um, some good notoriety in writing. And this thing was picking up. And I remember like emailing him, being so happy to like tell him a success story. And I told him like my idea of like the future of like what I wanted to do with writing. And like, it's still, I was like, oh, I hate that he's right. He said, that's cool. But I think you're more than that. And I was like, Oh, like I'm trying to give you a success story here. And he said, uh, you know, I, I, I'll never forget. He said, you're more than a small print author. And I think that's like, I didn't know what that meant at the time. And I was like, why does he give me these cryptic things? Just say good job and move on. But, uh, and you know, this is after I've graduated for a few years and he's so right. And now after working towards something else and failing at, many different endeavors with writing that he's totally right. Where the idea that I sent him that I wanted to do was nice. It was a good idea, but that's not why I got into writing. And so, you know, even today he still pushes me just by like little nudges where he's like, ah, just say good job and move on. But <laughs> oh, that's so, that is so funny. And um, we'll obviously dive a little bit deeper into your writing, but I start with Dr. Dell because he said he liked your writing. I also like the way you write and I want to share um, a quote that like really resonated with me um, and I think will be a good launching off point for conversation from a blog post in 2017. For those interested, a baseball game in a cornfield, it'll be linked in the show notes and you say... I can't help but notice she's one of Central PA's finest. The scuffs on her shoes match the calluses on her hands and the grin on her face matches the wrinkles around her eyes. She's lived well, lived slowly, and lived between Sunday morning with King James and Monday morning at the diner. I 
envy her. She embodied a contentment with life that I somehow lost on this journey of baseball. And that hit me. I was like, oh my God. Well, thank you for pulling that quote. That was a fun article to write. I don't know if actually fun is the right way to describe that. I think it was an important article for me to write because I was still working through a lot of the emotions of going from a baseball player to a non-baseball player. And I, I very much resonate with that, like that identity crisis. And it really hit me senior year of high school. I, I'll share. I played the entire senior year with a like stress fracture in my back, like broken back. And I got like the MRI, like the day of, or like the day after I, like, I knew I was hurt, but I couldn't right. let myself um, come to grips with that. And it hit me when I was like injured and couldn't play. Like my whole value was wrapped up in my right arm. Basically. It's like, right. if I can't throw then like, who am I? And then, so on the flip side of that, like I really envy those people who are just content and like, kind of like this woman in the diner. And so I'm like working on that myself, but I'd yeah. point the question to you, like, do you still envy her? Like that language really hit me. Uh, yeah, I do. Because the way she lives, I think no matter how successful or where you live or what you do, she was very happy with the work she was doing. And that is something that if you're rich or poor, or if you're a tech startup or whatever it is that you're doing, not many people are happy with, and this is specific, the work that you're doing. Okay. So what I mean by that specifically is we are told at a very young age, baseball players are the perfect example of it is to follow your passion, follow your dream to an extent that's not bad. Uh, because I think what you learn on the way of that dream is going to be way more important than obviously the dream itself, right? It's a cliche of the journey uh, more than destination. However, I don't think that is a great way to live life because what happens is now what we need to realize is passion is not something that we follow. Passion is a skill. Passion is something that we bring with us. So when we say that we want to be X, Y, Z, it's probably based off of probably like for me, probably my, my dad and brother, right? Cause that those are, are, are where I learned how to love the game of baseball, which is fine. But what goes into play, how do you play the game of baseball, play with passion, right? You play it with, with energy, you play it with intrigue, right? With interest, right? You, these are all skills that you learn and we're told to then go ahead and, and blindly follow it. What is the best way of living is finding something, anything that you can work at, that you're good at, that you can find a way to provide value, right? So like being a server is a great example because it's very cut and dry. You are providing value to your customers. And then we must become passionate about that. Okay. So that is the, that is the, the paradigm shift. So for her, you know, she worked at a diner, you know, I, I don't know if she was like part owner or if she was server, which is totally fine. But she loved the fact that she knew everyone's name that came into the diner. Uh, she knew uh, like when people were showing up. She knew how people liked their food. She knew all of these things because she brought passion to what she did. So I still envy her because now outside of baseball, 
we have to move on to something else because life does move on. You need student loans. You need to live and you need to be able to then say, okay, I need to bring passion to what I do. And, and, and quite frankly, that's the only way I think uh, to live. So I, I still envy her. I think she's still like a role model that people should look up to rather than saying, Hey, I had a dream when I was, I was five. Like, I don't know why we put an importance of a dream that we had in five. It's great. Like you should like, I'm not telling kids not to follow their dreams, but I'm saying like, you're going to have a new dream at age 25. That is just as important, if not more important than that dream that you had 20 years ago. And when you have a family, now it's about their dream. So you have these new dreams that you, that you do continue to follow, but it's up to us to bring passion to it rather than blindly follow it. So if you're not advocating following your passion, which is such cliche, and you're advocating for bringing your passion to whatever you do, what does that look like in your day job and your writing? But maybe start with your day job because your writing, it seems like that's the thing that that's more in line with your passion than maybe a day job. I, I don't know. I'd be interested to hear about that. Yeah. So I love this topic because I think it's very misconstrued today. I, I think there is this idea of, you know, what do people call like side hustle, right? This, this culture of side hustle, which I actually hate the term because the two words themselves side, meaning you're, you're not dedicated to it. Right. So it's, it's put off to the side. It's something that is thought as an afterthought, which is incorrect. Uh, and then hustle has this idea of like a scheme behind it, that you're pulling a fast one over another person. And, and that's totally incorrect. Um, but we live in one of the best eras to actually make a choice of what type of career and what what you actually want to do. Okay, so right now we've never been to a point where people can work from an office wherever they want, and it's not a big deal, right? That's actually part. I mean, so this whole COVID thing um, has proven that it really just sped up a lot of the workforce. However. This is the first time where a lot of employees started having more say over that. A lot of times you had to move to a different place. You had to you know, kind of follow through. Uh, even think of our parents' generation. It was, you worked at one company for 30 years and you went from janitor to CEO, right? Like that's, that was the idea. I still believe you can go from janitor to CEO, but it's going to be in 20 different companies because they're never going to promote you across departments. So anyway, I digress. What I will say is that you need to build a toolbox, a right of passion. Like I actually love what I do as a day job. I'm, I'm a web growth consultant. So I help companies grow their organic footprint and grow companies digitally, which is something that right now is, is now in the forefront of everyone's mind, which you know has been for the past 10 years. Now it's just becoming more uh, predominant. I think it's extremely important that if you want to follow something that you believe in, right? So for me, writing, right? For you, podcasting, right? Whatever it might be, art, like whatever somebody wants to follow that's outside of the realm of that, that you need a quality day job that you enjoy. That sounds very counterintuitive, right? Where it's like you hear about, uh, you hear about all these authors like struggling, barely making it by. Being a struggling artist does not make you a better artist. Being a struggling minor league baseball player did not make me a better baseball player, right? These are myths in our mind. What you actually need is a job that you can do at a very high level, 
right? In a way that you could be one of the best in the world at. And I mean that in all seriousness, because that's where the most revenue is. If you can get to a top percentage of what you do, it could be anything, right? You'll be able to command a bit higher than the average, right? And then from there, you can be financially secure. You could be financially free from whatever's going on. If you can have a job that you dedicate yourself to for 40 hours, no matter what, they're given 40 hours. Then if you can do that, right? And you could say, I am willing to do this for 30 years, which is a lot, right? And don't get me wrong, move around. That's fine. Now you have given yourself the ability to fail at anything you want and still be fine. That is the definition of artistic freedom. And that is what artists need more than saying that you are, you know, you're getting an apartment in Brooklyn with 10 other people trying to scrape by and, and doing whatever it is to make it by either way, right? If you do that, you got to know that a lot of your work is going to be putting towards making money. If you could have a way of making the money that you need, and I'm not saying you got to be rich. That's, that's a total lie. The amount of money that you need to sustain yourself and your family now you have given yourself the ability to fail. If you could do that, now you could take risks. Now you could go after bigger projects that, hey, like I'll tell you right now, I worked on a book for the past three years that ended up flopping. I could do that because my rent doesn't depend on that book. And I said, man, that sucked. You know, it was a great learning experience, but it sucked that it didn't work out. And I closed that book and we're on to the next, right? So the ability to fail, if you don't have that, you're not going to be able to take risk and you're not going to be able to push yourself. So I will say, if you want to go out on your own as like an entrepreneur doing that sort of life, that's great, but you will need something in the center this core that right now will provide everything you need so you can take risk. Then I hope you get to the point where you're like, man, I am spread way too thin. I am turning down projects outside of work because I have 40 hours I have to give. Once that starts happening and you're saying, man, I can grow this podcast to way bigger than what I can, but I can only work on it a few, you know, realistically, if you work two hours a day on something else, like that's plenty. That like, two hours of uninterrupted work is plenty. Uh, but if you're saying I could do way more if I had four hours, that's when you could start making decision of maybe I don't need this main job because now it's taking away from that idea of freedom, right? So I think that's the way to approach a certain, if you want to have a career in the arts or a career in more of what we call like a risk, that's great. But you need to be able to sustain that risk by saying, I'm willing to take bigger risks. Because again, as a writer, if I didn't have another job, right, I would have to take anything that came across my proverbial desk. I would have to say yes to everything. I would then I would have a writing job, right? And I couldn't then work on the work that I want to do. So I think it's key for people to realize there is nothing wrong with going all in on something. And by going all in saying, okay, I'm going to make myself financially stable with 40 hours a week to something else. And then I'm going to go with that. I'm going all in with fill in the blank. So that's the way I think people should approach this idea of following passion, right? Following a dream. It's great, but you need to take risk. If you can't take risk, then you don't have a dream. I love this idea. And it's, I think it was in Adam Grant's last book 
the Wharton professor in. So he, the book starts with the idea or not the idea, the example of the guys who started Warby Parker were literally like UPenn Wharton, like grads, they are making so much money and they're starting this war, uh, Warby Parker eyeglasses on the side. And these investors are like, Oh, your heart's obviously not in it. You're keeping your day job. And Adam Grant's like, that is the exact wrong way to approach it. He said exactly what you're saying is like, no, me and Adam Grant are on the same page. Wow. That's, that is a compliment. The security of the day job is giving you the flexibility to take risks in this other endeavor. So off of that, I want to say, or want to ask, like, what is your personal routine look like managing these two commitments? Right. I'll say my personal routine is going to sound odd to a lot of people, but give it to um, me. Okay. So I wake up pretty early, but what does that mean to you? So it, it, like five 30, right. That's that, that's really not super early. I think that's pretty, pretty average. If you said six o'clock, that's not a big deal, but um, so I'll wake up at five 30 and in disclaimer, Another thing that I will also throw, I don't, I don't truly believe that just because you do things in the morning makes you more successful than somebody that does things at night. I think that's, that's like a, we have this idea of like this grind porn where we just like love to like grind for no reason. It's like, listen, like, like get your sleep. If you can put in, put in the work, right. I mean, don't get me wrong. You got to put in the work, but like, I don't care if you do it at 5am, 3am, like it, it, it literally is just no, like when does your no body bearing. want to sleep? <laughs> right. I, I think I think people need to start uh kind of looking at their own schedule a bit more. Like, please tell a mother that has three small children that she needs to meditate for 20 minutes to become successful in life. It's like, okay, like like please talk to someone else. Uh so okay, I'll tell you like my routine is, is very is very simple. So I, I work full-time remote. Um, so I have an office that, that that's where I do most of my work. Um, but I wake up at five 30 and I actually start off by working. So it's, this is going to sound like I'm a workaholic. Don't get me wrong. I'm borderline, but I'm, I'm working through it. So, uh, I will work, you know, wake up around five 30 and then I will give myself an hour. Right. So that first hour is where I pretty much do all the stuff that doesn't take full creative needs. So what that means is answering emails. I do answer emails. People say, oh, don't answer first thing in the morning. I'm half awake. It's perfect for me to answer emails like at that time. So respond to emails, you know, look at what I need to accomplish for that day, that week, set up meetings, whatever it is, like pretty much admin BS, I will give myself one hour at most to do that. And, and with that, usually you don't need an hour of admin. I just tell myself an hour of uninterrupted work. Um, from that, at, at 6.30, I take my dog out and we go for a nice walk. I know that sounds... That is actually one of the most important aspects too, because that's how I transition, right? So after that, after I take my dog for a walk, then at, at 7, then I, I go to the gym. At 8, I will then uh, start work. So then I work for the man from 8 to around 5. And in that time... If I can't get something done that I need to get done for my SEO world, then I, I need to change it. I don't actually add any more time. That means I'm inefficient with what I'm doing. That's when I go, how many meetings am I having per day? What can I be more clear with my team about management? How can I get things done a bit faster and be and better with it? Right. I don't think of adding more time. And then from there, usually I will take um, 
the e, I, my end is around seven. And then I, I will write from, you know, around five into six 30 at, at like a dinner time. So with writing, I will say, I give myself about an hour and a half per day. I found that to be my sweet spot. And some people will be a little bit more, some people be a little bit less, but that hour and a half is really where after that time, I was really having to rewrite a lot of the stuff I was working on. Um, and it wasn't that valuable. And anything before then, it felt like I was just getting going and then I had to stop. So I'll usually give myself uh, an hour and a half every day. And then unfortunately, I do work on Saturday with, uh, I know people will call like, call BS on that. I like, listen, it works for me, right? It, it helps where if I'm like, hey, if, if I want to get some more writing done, I will write in the morning. Um, usually Saturdays are strictly for writing. And then I won't do anything Sunday, but uh, other than read. So that's kind of the basis of it. Another thing with the idea of a routine, I think it's great. Um, I also have it like blocked off. If you see my calendar, I do everything by block. I don't do anything by time. So if writing goes really well, and in, in the sense of I go past an hour and a half, like I don't stress over a certain like time. The only thing I am strict with time is like the forty hours that I give per week. It's like not because I don't want to work more, but because if I am working more then I'm probably not that effective at what I'm doing. So I'll do everything by block. Uh, so I don't have that anxiety of like, oh my gosh, there's only 10 minutes left of my workout and I haven't done what I wanted to. It's like, well, you can work out for an extra 15 minutes and that's fine. Like we, we stress over little things. So ultimately it is a full day. Um, I don't think it's anything crazy. Uh, I try to keep that the same and just try to find ways of being more, more efficient in what I do. I like that. And even that hour and a half, just seems like a very like manageable amount of time. I'm even thinking about myself, like, you know, if I want to tackle like more ambitious things with the podcast or have it grow, it's like, Oh, like 60 or 90 minutes a day. It's like, you definitely have that. So that that's, that's cool that you, I guess, the time you dedicate to writing is less than I would have guessed, but I'm sure it's like very focused and intentional, like deep work that like, you know, like once you, once you hit that tipping point of you're not as productive, you're like, all right, let's, let's call it. Quits. Exactly. So yeah, put it, put it this way. So writing is very, very similar to how I approach baseball and the actual writing is the the workout. So put it put it like that way. Right? So and don't get me wrong, there's 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 other trainings, there's there's reading, there's things that I do throughout the day that don't need their own time slot to prepare for writing. Sorry, I just hit my headphones out. Uh, but there's other things that I do throughout the day that can help writing, but it would be the equivalent of someone saying, "Hey, I went to the gym for 3 hours today." That's probably a lot of eyewash, right? Or if you saw the person in the gym that is just going after it for an hour and a half, you'd be like, holy shit, how do they work out for an hour and a half? Right? That is the type of work that I want to do. Like, I don't write because I'm just grazing through like, oh, and, and to like, tell people that I write. Right? It's, it's not for anyone but me. So if I'm not doing deep work, then I'm actually hurting myself only. So the way I look at it is that hour and a half is plenty of time. And the whole idea is that if you are taking the mentality, just like you would in the gym, of 
if you ask them, Hey, can you get a good workout in an hour and a half? They'd be like, uh, yeah, I get a good workout in 20 minutes. So that's the way that I look at writing. And if, if something is going on where like I'm not getting things in, then, then I don't think there's anything wrong with writing more than an hour and a half, but, um, but that's kind of what I found to, to work best for me. And again, I do this every day. So I don't have like a lot of writers I know will work better in chunks. Like that's true. They're like, Hey, I'm going to write all morning. And they do that three times a week. You know, I, I do this six times a week. So that hour and a half, you know, adds up as I'm, as I'm working on something plus going too far into a book and not really letting your mind sink in and, 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 and actually understand what you're trying to say, you're going to have a lot of rewrites. So I found that doing a bit more deep work in a shorter amount of time allows me to give myself checkpoints. So again, it works for me. Like there's no magic button to make you a better writer. I mean, I could tell you a lot of bullshit that's out there, but for me, that's what works. And, and that's something that I just, I just try to build off that. And you mentioned that you, you do it for yourself. And I think that's so important in kind of like, I had that mindset switch, especially like now that I've started a job where I have like stuff I'm doing during the day. So it's like, okay, any other energy, it, it's got to be for myself. And it's not like I'm trying to put stuff out into the world or online, like for anybody else. Um, it takes like the pressure off, but I could go down a rabbit hole on that. I do want to make sure we talk about your baseball life and your baseball identity. We touched on it yeah. a little bit earlier, but I think this is a topic that, I mean, I've had a lot of reflection, I'd say, yeah. um, reflection on. And in one of your other pieces, it was... Um, what happens when our lives end, uh, which was just an awesome read. And I think every baseball player would be would benefit from reading that. You say, we have a choice, bury the person or bury the player. So in kind of, well, maybe can you walk me through what you were going through or thinking through when you wrote that? Yeah. So... I appreciate you bringing up that piece. That that also is is a important piece uh, to me because that was uh, really the transitional time from me seeing myself as a player, as as trying to figure out how I see myself elsewhere. So what I meant by that of you either bear the person or bear the player is that there's a lot of guys that I've played with, a lot of you know ex big leaguers, a lot of ex high school players. It doesn't matter like what level. That's this, a myth that we have is that depending on the level that you've achieved will be the uh, level of that what you see yourself. Like, you know, I was able to play professional baseball in the minor in the minor leagues with the Cardinals, and that doesn't change how I see the game compared to someone that only played in high school. Like, these are everyone's going through the same emotions, just experiencing it in a different way. So, what I mean by bearing the person or bearing the player is there were were players that still saw themselves as a 20 year old baseball player and they were 45. And that means they, they missed out on 25 years of life. So if you can't find a way to put the, the player down and, and pick up the person by saying, Hey, 
like who, who am I and, and what can I do and what defines who I am, uh, then you're pretty much going to be, I, I call it, you're carrying around a dead body and no one can, can function that way. So uh, I, I think one of the keys is, you know, you hit it with identity of like, you know, baseball for some reason, everyone wants to be a baseball player. And it's not like, oh, I want to play baseball. It's like, no, I want to be a baseball player. Uh, but the next thing that is maybe more tactical is that we're not, we don't think that we're good at anything else. That sounds very basic, but we have swung a bat or thrown a leather ball for 20 years of our lives and gotten to, to be the top 1% of that in the world. And now the skill that we have is outdated. And that's the only skill that we have. A lot of times, like myself included, I did no internships in college because I was playing summer ball. My, you know, my, I, I got a degree, which I'm very grateful for, but communication degree is, is nice. It's not uh, a direct entry into something, right? Like if, if you get a, you know, if you get a degree in applied statistics, like that is a very specific path, right? Communication is very much a battle royale afterwards. So you don't, you need to, I remember when the hardest thing was like, what am I good at? It's almost like you're in a time capsule where it's like, okay, I am, you know, 25 years old. And I feel like I have the resume of an 18 year old because I've done nothing else. So one, we don't know what we're good at, even though there, there's a lot of skills there that you can apply with, but we don't, we don't know that. Uh, two, there's also this like ticking time bomb. And, and I still feel this today. And it's not actually not a bad thing if you can harness it where I always feel like that I am behind the eight ball. There is a writer out there that went to the, you know, Iowa's writing workshop. And there's another MFA out there that is 10 steps ahead of me. And we are all fighting for the same publishing contracts, right? There's, there's, there's a finite amount of those, even though that's like kind of a lie. Um, but that's how I feel, right? There's always someone that has gotten, that's already further than me at the same level as me. That is, that is, 10 steps ahead and it forces me to, to work, right? There's, there's not a time where I don't write. I mean, I've, I've been writing every single day for the past five years. So that, and then even in my day job, right? I'm, I'm a, I'm a web growth consultant, right? I, I'm, I'm working on these, on these companies that some people have 10 years in the industry that uh, I'm trying to, to lead and manage and work with. And, and the fact is like, I need to learn faster than anyone else. Like I still feel like, holy shit, this person's been doing SEO and organic growth since college and they're the same age as me. That means they have such a higher leg up. I need to find ways that I can learn from them and, and learn and, and get quicker at failing. So we have this, you know, this not only do we not know what we're good at, we have this ticking time bomb on our back. Cause a lot of times like you have debt, you have student debt, you have like things that you have to pay for, like in that realm. But also we don't know what else to fail at, right? We, like, we started talking about this. Like we don't know what risks we can take. A lot of times we then don't take any risks and, you know, go back into coaching or go to something closer to the game. A lot of people are successful that way. I had to step away from the game because I only saw myself as a player. So if you see yourself as a player and you try to coach, you're going to be a shitty coach. And that was going to be me if I didn't step away. Um, so that, again, in a very tactical way, not only do we not know who we are, but we don't know what to do and we don't know what to do about it. And that is a very, very like 
you, you feel like any, any way you go is going to be wrong. And, and that is a very hard place to be. So that I think is not only the identity, but the day-to-day struggle of, oh, I don't, I really don't even know what decision to make. It's a very lonesome feeling. And I think that is a, a lot that, that we, I think could be solvable. Uh, that really isn't right now. It's lonesome and it's also paralyzing because you feel like you need to be right in whatever decision you make, but, and like, you've literally never had to make a decision in your past. Like everything you did from how you ate to how you trained to how you spent the hours of your day to what time you went to bed was, was like laid out for you. And even like decisions on where to go to college, like everything was laid out and you mentioned this like being a baseball player then i think on your website you said after being a baseball player for so long you had to examine the fibers of who i am and this is exactly what you're talking about but maybe tactically like what are some questions or conversations that helped you get clear on like who you are yeah so let's even make it more surface level than like who you are. Cause that's, that's a big question. That's something I think we're always going to be defining. I mean, for me, I, I, I try to now put a lot more definition into, um, you know, the person that I can be the person I'm working towards. Uh, and, and I put a lot, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I put a lot in faith. I don't talk much about it cause I don't, I don't really, I don't know. I, I think sometimes it becomes more of like a promotional thing rather than, rather than who you are. So I put a lot in faith and a lot about who I want to be as, as a person. And, and so, what goes into the person that you want to be. Right. So, so that, and that's always like evolving in a way, like you're always working on that. So some of the questions I'm asking myself or, or some of the things I'm working on are things that I wouldn't be working on two years ago. Cause I wasn't in that stage of life. I know that's very meta, but let's go very surface level. Right. So when you're in, like, you don't know what to do. You're no longer a baseball player. Let's say you have a degree, right. That that's great. Cause you don't need to go back and get that. I would, I would ask when I did ask, like, what are you interested in? And I don't mean what do you love or what do you like? What are you interested in? What is interesting to you? And that's the first step. So for me, like, I, I like solving things. I, I, again, this is going to sound like elementary, right? I like solving things and I like growing. Like, I, I like growing things, right? I mean, getting better at something. I like the idea of achievement. It sounds superficial, but I mean that in a very introspective way. I like getting, I like seeing being at like at one and then going to three. I, I think that is awesome. Right. Um, so with that, and we'll use my own personal example, like I was applying to like jobs that I thought like, okay, I think I would do well at an ad agency. Cause I, I think I like the, like the, the culture, whatever that means with a company. But I, again, I, I didn't know what to do. So I was like, let's just make moves and let's, you know, we'll sort everything out later. We'll see, we'll see what happens. Um, I thought an ad agency because like, you know, I'm okay. I'm also creative. Like I, by, by write, like, I think that's, that's a good fit. So I wanted to be a copywriter, right? I was like, this is perfect. Thank God that didn't work out because one, I know there's a lot of copywriters that then turn into authors. I mean, James Patterson is a perfect example. That's not going to be me. I mean, it's very hard to write for eight hours a day and then be like, I cannot wait to go home and sit down and write. It's a very hard thing to do. But, um, I found this thing called SEO where search engine optimization. And, and again, you don't need to know much about that. Ultimately what you're trying to do is 
acquire customers and acquire users through search algorithms like Google, Bing, or, or anything organically. So it's not any paid ads. And I thought it was really interesting. I'm like, okay, there's an actual system that not many people know about that you got to try. You know, some people try to game it, which you always end up losing. But what you're actually trying to do is grow trust between a, a customer and a company. And I thought that was really cool. So that I was like, I, I was I was able to get an entry level job in SEO and agency. And for the record, like that's where everyone starts. It's not great work. Like your first job is not going to be great work. You're not going to be solving the world's problems as an entry level SEO at an at an automotive ad agency. However, I did learn even more skills. One, I learned the basics, the very basics of SEO. I mean, it wasn't that advanced, but it was very basic. I learned how to manage clients. I learned how to manage people. I learned how to work with people that may not have ever heard of SEO. And I've learned how to articulate that. So right there, I'm learning these skills that pay off the dividends now in the work that I'm doing of how important that is. Um, and I was able to, to find that I could be good at something else. I was really good at it. Like I, I was... Was so cool and so rewarding to be like, man, this company came to us and was like, hey, we want to try to get more customers. And then I was able to lead a strategy to do that. Like that helped a, someone's family pay for for dance lessons. I thought that was the coolest shit ever. Um, and then like scaling it up to now, uh, you know, in, in private equity, where, where I'm I'm really helping to lead certain investment companies. Where I'll, I'll just say like the zeros on the end of those sites are much bigger than what I used to be working on. And it's the same feeling that we can do something in the right way and be good at it. And it's interesting and it's competitive. So I would start off with that, right? Don't try to be like, like, man, just like let yourself find something that's interesting and try it and then, and dive into it, right? Apply yourself, but find something that's interesting. And then you can take the next step and then you can navigate. And I think that the next part of this is super important that a lot of people forget is that in your career or even in if you're you know in the career in the arts like you have to be able to navigate that's part of the job and that is scary to a lot of people so what i mean by navigate is no one and we'll talk corporate real we'll, we'll start with corporate and then we'll go into the arts corporate no one's going to care more about your career than yourself okay and what i mean by that is if you're doing great work and you are applying yourself and you are a good worker, you will, what will happen is you'll get promoted to a certain extent. And then what will happen, you'll miss a couple of promotions or whatnot. You'll be there for three years and you'll probably have to leave, right? There is a level that you will get at certain companies because ultimately those roles have to have a certain like dollar sign to them, right? Human capital management means like you can't pay some, like pretty much you can't pay someone a million dollars in the same role if you're paying someone else 40 grand, right? Like that's just not how it works. But you need to be able to be aware enough. Okay. I, I worked at the like agency. I loved it. I'm still friends with who I worked with and I left in two years, right? You got to know when it's time to move elsewhere. Same with the company, right? It's a value exchange. If you're not producing, right? And, and, the, and the value that you're giving is going down, that's probably when you're going to get fired. Now, if your value is way over, what you're producing, right? Excuse me. If your value is way over what they're producing for you, it's time for you to either get promoted or move on. So we need to be able to navigate and know that it's okay 
Like I, I know a lot of people that don't want to move from like a, a job or something that they're doing just because they think the optics won't look good. And like, that's one of the worst decisions to make. I believe that transitions are important. If you do it professionally and you say, Hey, I got this great opportunity. They're going to be happy for you because that's the point. So navigation means being aware of the path that you're on. Same thing in the arts. Like a lot of people will write one, one book, one story. Um, and then they, they kind of sit on that. There's nothing wrong with that of saying like, Hey, you want to write a book and that's it. Like that is awesome. But if you want to be a writer, like if you want to write for a living at some point, or if you want a body of work, right, you're going to have to know like, Hey, this book might work. This book may not work. And then that you need to know the timing to pitch it, right? The book that I just worked on that failed. I don't believe that it's because the story isn't great. It's just not the right time to sell that story. So I'm going to revisit it in a few years, right? So you need to be able to look at it in the sense of how do we navigate this industry? So that's a very long way of saying, start with what's interesting to you. And then two, find a way to navigate through the shitty side of it and navigate to a place that now you can sustain yourself. So last thing I'll say, I know this is a, a bit, I'll get off, I'll, I'll get off my, uh, my soapbox right after this. And the last thing I'm actually unpopular opinion. I'm actually a big fan of everyone I think should take a sabbatical. Okay. Again, doctors do it. Professors do it. I think people should take a sabbatical. What I mean by that is a lot of times, athlete or not, we go from college to the pressure of, well, what job are you getting after? Or what are you doing? Right. So then we end up getting a job. It could be a great job. It could be a shitty job. Um, and then we work because, okay, student loans are kicking in, right? You got to pay for rent. You probably have a car payment life, right? If you, we want to move up this proverbial ladder to make real money, to get financially stable and the whole nine. So we work, we'll even say you work maybe for five years, right? And you're working, you're moving up, you're getting promoted, maybe move to a different company, right? All these things happen. And then it hits you at a certain time that you've been working and you're not even sure what the purpose is behind the job that you're doing, but you have to do it because that's you're like, you have to sustain life. So I'm actually a big component and I know it, it's very privileged to be able to say, I want to take a sabbatical. So I don't mean quitting your job for a year. I think it is very important of reflection to say, Hey, maybe you take a longer vacation, right? If you have PTO, use it. But again, use it. If you're working somewhere else, maybe, Hey, maybe I'll, if you're your own entrepreneur, be like, Hey, maybe I'll, I'll try to take a few more days for myself. And in those days, really think about what does the next two years of doing this look like? And what does the next 20 years of doing this look like? And a lot of times it'll come back by saying, this is what I want to do. And this is, this is great. And you'll have a new vigor of what you do, or it might be, Hey, might need a transition because the purpose is really sucking me dry. Right. So that I think it's important. Like I, I call it a sabbatical, but it's just an intentionally taking time off intentionally rather than just saying like, Oh, I'm going to veg on Netflix for a week and then go back to work. I'm probably going to steal that idea. And it's a, when you said first said sabbatical, I was like, okay, that's, that's pretty aggressive, but it is just more intentional reflection in yeah. assessing like where you're at and Hey, maybe it's time to pivot or use your word time to navigate this next, like whatever few years. Um, 
Are you good to keep rolling? Because I do want to talk. Yeah, no, let's keep going. I mean, that was I, I was on a soapbox for like 10 minutes and I might need to cut that. But no, uh, I'll I'll no. hand you I'll hand you the mic back in <laughs> because I think we're gonna talk about a topic that's littering your website and your Twitter. But before we get to romance more generally in the realm of fiction this is i think the project you're alluding to that you're currently working on in this like fiction space you have a very specific term that i've never heard of on your website called conversational fiction so you've written and helped other athletes write stories about sports and like using those to kind of bring like larger truths through through the written word but this conversational fiction phrase, you say you want to have conversations with the world. And so I'd be interested, like what conversations yeah. with the world or yourself are you interested in exploring? Yeah, I might, I might need to adjust conversation with the world. That sounds very uh, self-indulgent, you know, uh, th- that sounds very self-centered, but what do I mean by conversational fiction? We look at fiction sometimes incorrectly. So I've been fortunate enough to, to write nonfiction, right? And finding a small niche, writing a lot of nonfiction stories, particularly with sports. And, and I want to continue doing that. Um, however, I want to write fiction, specifically, you know, what I, what I call conversational fiction. Sometimes we see fiction as like an escape, right? We see it as like, uh, oh, I'm just going to read this. I'm going to forget about life and read this fiction novel. Uh, Fiction is just as important to a lot of conversations that are in the world because it gives us an avenue to talk about, right? It gives us it gives us this freedom to talk about a story or a character rather than events or a person or a place. So there's a lot of important stories that if you want to learn about the, you know, like the history of our, our country or anything historical, right? Historical fiction. I think is a great place to actually to read. Um, so with that, the way I look at fiction and specifically conversational fiction is I think it should be in that same vein. I don't think you need to, you know, write, write the next uh, like story that is told for centuries. Right. I think that that's, that would be, that'd be cool. Um, but I think if we take categories and we take ideas of what these books are about and we use fiction to give people the ability to talk about it, I think that'd be great. Uh, an obvious example that we could bring up is for me, romance, right? So I thoroughly enjoy reading and writing romance. And for the record, romance is a big spectrum of books. So it's not just Hallmark and it's not just 50 shades of gray. There are, there are There's something in between. Sub, there are subgenres for everything. I mean, you have uh, pretty much any, any action there's romantic action, right? There's romantic comedy, there's romantic suspense, right there. And there are a, a huge, it's a reflection of the, of just commercial fiction in general. There's a romance uh, reflection of that. So I thoroughly enjoy reading these because of a few reasons. I think men should read read them more. Uh, they show us one to be a romance. There it has there has to be three elements, right? There has to be a, a happily ever after, right? So it's like, oh, I wonder if people get together. It's not the point of romance. It's how they get together. But it's person A is in love with person B. 
person A loses person B, then person A and person B live happily ever after. Now, in order to get that, one, there has to be some form of mistake, right? In order to then see a mistake, there has to be a realization that there was a mistake made. From that, there has to be a vulnerability of that. So the most likely the way it happens, if it's a, uh, a heterosexual uh, romance, the guy usually makes the mistake, right? But then he has to come to a realization about the mistake and has to be vulnerable, vulnerable about it. And then finally, they have to be willing to give up everything to make it right. So that's where you get a lot of these historical romance, for example, um, where you have a lot of these, like, I don't read historical, I read mostly contemporary, but in a historical sense, you'll get these like princes, you'll get these stories that they are willing to give up a kingdom just to make it right for this woman. And a lot of times these stories are a reflection of what women go through today, but we use the 1800s as a vehicle to talk about it because now it's no longer personal and now it could be objective about it. So that is conversational fiction. And that I think is really important to the, to certain conversations that we have for guys. I think something like romance book club, right? This was a big book in the romance world that really did well and still doing well. It's, it's a series. And the whole idea is reevaluating masculinity and that book alone. If guys read it, which yeah, some do, um, it gives you the ability to talk about certain aspects of, you know, masculinity or life or whatever it might be through the eyes of a character or a plot or a, or a portion of a book rather than their own lives. And that starts conversation. So you mentioned that's bromance book club with a B, right? Yeah. With a B. Yeah. yeah. Alyssa K. Adams wrote it. She is a wonderful writer and it's a, it's a series now, but that's one example, right? Where it, it gives whoever reads it, it gives them the ability to then talk about situations without saying like, Hey, where do you feel your life is wrong? Like that, that's pretty heavy. But if you're like, Hey, what about, you know, Jason over here? What about him? That allows you now to step away from it, the mm. objective, and you could start a conversation that way. So fiction is very important to a lot of the conversations that we have with ourselves, but we sometimes look at it wrong. So that's the long and short of conversational fiction. No, I, I appreciate you giving that uh, definition because I, I was scratching my head and you're talking to a guy who's bookshelf i don't know if there's a fiction book up there i'm looking no listen i that's don't fine. think I... there is so <laughs> with that in mind where does somebody start you mentioned bromance book club uh yeah i mean that's that's probably like, a, like are you talking fiction or are you talking romance let's I think go we, romance I, I would probably start you off with fiction to star I, I, I honestly listen i love romance i'm a big component of it it's very hard. I think we need to give more like romance adjacent books before giving someone the Daniel Steele of being like, here's like a, a, you know, a true romance. Like, I think we should, we should guide you into it. Um, I would tell you if you're looking for fiction of like that you want to be thinking about for like weeks at a time, like even more, I will tell you to read Frederick Backman. So he wrote Man Called Ove. Uh, he wrote, I, I would tell you, start with Anxious People. It's his most recent book. Uh, he is, I like reading him. 
and I hate reading him at the same time because he is the closest, the closest writer to perfection that the world has ever seen. And so I, I love reading his stories, not because I think I could write like him, but because I can never write like him because the stories are like the storytelling, not writing, right? We think sometimes we think of writing, we think like these really fragrant sentences and all these like things, but in writing storytelling is more important than, than, than wordsmithing. The way he tells a story will just blow you away. And they're so introspective that there's self-help books as fiction. Like, like that's legit. Like, I mean, like there's no better way. Like if, if you're going to start somewhere, start there. Anxious people, Frederick Backman. Is there any other books that you've maybe gifted or recommended to your own peers? Maybe not your girlfriend or a female, but particularly yeah, yeah. to guys. No, sure. Well, I mean, I, I read a lot. Obviously, to be a good writer, you have to be a good reader. There's no getting around that. Like, you can be a good reader and not be a writer, but you cannot be a writer without being a reader. So, what, like, what do you like to read? I can't just recommend a book other than Frederick Backman because that that that's where I'd start. But like, what do you like to to read about? What do you like to learn about, or, or why do you read? I mean, a lot of the books that I read are. So I studied psychology and economics in college. So a lot of them are like psychology professors turning research into how does this apply into my own life? So that is like a lot of what I read. And then I'm also enjoy like history and like learning from history and like philosophy and those types of themes. Okay, cool. So you're probably, I bet you you're like one year separated from your Malcolm Gladwell phase. Is that, does that sound right? Or are you well, still in it? Are you, you're still, you're still in your Gladwell no, phase? No, no. I think no, I'm, no, no. I'm okay. beyond the, the okay, Malcolm cool. Gladwell phase. I'm, I'm no, past. That's good. Yeah. Everyone goes through their phase. I always, I always wonder if someone goes through it right after college or sophomore year of college. It's, it's always, a it, was, it was, it was, it was a college thing, but I am yeah, looking yeah, at, yeah, a sweet. Mountain, I'm looking at tipping point on my book. <laughs> Listen, no, it's literally good. read me like a book. Listen, we all go through certain reading phases. Okay. So something like that. If you're looking for fiction, specifically fiction, I would tell you to read Silent Patient. That is very thoughtful and it's very mysterious. So if you like breaking down the ins and outs of people, that's, that's a good one. I, I think the, the, perfect, the, the perfect fiction is Shutter Island. If you ever read, if you ever, you probably watched the movie with I Leo. watched the movie. Yeah. Um, it was filmed no, in my hometown. <laughs> oh, no shit. That's cool. Yeah. Um, in that case, I, I would read the book. It, because it does help if you watch the movie, you'll be able to pick up on little things. And I'll tell you, it is it is a well-crafted story and it's easy to read. It, it's great. I, I would I would start those two. Well, thank you. And I appreciate you not just giving a uh, a blanket answer. You're like, oh, like you actually you actually uh, went one level deeper, made it custom. So I appreciate that. Well, if you asked for recommendations for yourself, you didn't ask me like, hey, what are your favorite books? Like those are two different things. But but yeah, no, I I, I think fiction I, I think if people start reading the, the right books of fiction and not just uh literary like you know it's great that that we want people to read shakespeare in high school but like it also pushes a lot of people away from reading great stories because we only push literature like i love commercial fiction and a lot of people especially in the writing world like 
look down on me on through their monocle because I like sto- like I like good stories. Like that's it. So like sorry. Uh, yeah, like yeah, geez, like sorry I'm not reading every literary story every that has classic like yeah that every story that just has a ton of angst in it like I, you know sorry i like i like good stories no that's good and there's a lot of uh honesty and vulnerability there so that's that's cool and i want to be respectful of the time and uh wind this one down but i do have a few they could be I call them rapid fire questions. They don't have to be rapid fire answers, but they don't really like fit in with the rest of the conversation. Yeah, perfect. So, no, I'll, I'll try it. We'll try to do it. We'll do it quick. Yeah, no, we'll they, they, fast. They, they don't have to be fast. But so on your website, you can sign up for your email list and you literally, it looks like you would send fans books. Where did you get this idea from? Yeah. Uh, I should probably remove that because I hate sending emails to people. I have a, a nice small list, but yeah. So ultimately one of my goals, you know, like we talked about this idea of taking risk is I want to be able to have books for someone that wants to read it. I know this is supposed to be rapid fire, but real quick, yeah. I'll, I'll wrap this up in a minute, but we have this really weird thing as authors where like you ask people to join your like mailing list, like whatever, whatever the hell that means of like, your newsletter again no one wants a newsletter like, the, like especially from an author like like i'm writing that like that's my update like I'm, I'm literally writing things trying to entertain you like that's my update so i don't do newsletter i don't do any of that bullshit i hardly tweet um, i need to get, I probably need to get better at that but i hardly do anything but also books aren't sold on twitter i appreciate people that talk about books on twitter and i would like to join those conversations but i i don't do a lot of those things because i'm writing I'm working on writing. I'm an apprentice to words. So anyway, we have all these people that sign up for like whatever it might be. They want the next book. That is awesome. That is great. You have a fan, you have a reader. It's like, damn it. I can't wait for your next book. And the first thing that we do is we say, here's my book, you know, pre-order it. Like, great. Yeah. Like they should buy their, like you're good. Buy, like, you should buy authors books because I can guarantee you not many authors are making a ton of money. Right. So like buy their books. It's 20 bucks. Like, buy their book, buy it hardcover, do it. Um, but then the next thing we do is we say, sign, you know, sign up for this list, buy my book, review it, put it on this, send it to a friend, do all these things. It's like we give, we, someone just said, I love your books. And we, now we just gave them chores. That sounds ridiculous to me where, hey, Chris, you email me about a book that you read that I wrote. Imagine if I'm like, great, here's some chores for you to do. Like it, it, so, it's, it sounds weird saying it because it makes no sense to me. So ultimately what I would like to do, and uh, it's something that I'm still developing in a way, I would like to have this idea of not free books, but gifted books, where if someone is part of like, like yourself, you're like, man, I like what you write. I want to read the next thing. Guess what? The fact that you're willing to like drop your email and to like send me a note and to to follow what I do. The next time I come out with a book, I'm going to gift it to you because those are the people that I want to to talk about books. Like I, I would love for someone that loves what I do to tweet about it, to talk about it, to do a podcast about it, to do these things. I want to enable that. So ultimately. The way I'm setting this up is if you are part of the in, if you're part of the day ones, like when I when I 
first get my fiction contract and the book is going to go into publication, I want to have the people that are like, Hey, Jake, like we want to support you, but like may not be my thing. That's fine. I want them to buy all my books. Like I want people to buy it in bulk and then me give them to the crew. That's like, listen, I cannot wait to shout about this book on the rooftop. Like, listen, I'll, I will give you the book, you know, by all means do what you want with it and, and don't do, or don't do anything with it. Like I want the people that are excited for my work to get a gift rather than to get chores. So ultimately I'm never going to have a newsletter. I'm going to say that. And then like shit will go crazy in 10 years and I'll have this newsletter. But um, as of right now, I'm never going to have a newsletter. Um, I'm going to have a gift list. And the goal is that we could work up to getting anyone who's on that list that is willing to be part of my mission, that they will get a book. That's who I want to give my books to. So that's ultimately like, I, I really, I don't have anything to give right now because I'm so, I'm, I'm literally writing. Uh, but that's, that's the goal of that is not a newsletter. I'm probably going to change the language of it. It's like, I just want to give you shit because you're willing to be part of what I'm doing. That is such a cool mindset and like a giver mindset. And I think has applications far beyond just just that one uh, domain. But you mentioned Twitter and your Twitter background photo says live simply on a typewriter. What were you reflecting on when you made that your banner? Yeah, that was uh, that's what my dad always told us growing up. I mean, he's the a simple man, but he's a complex human being. And he always just told us to live simply. And that sounds like a cliche, but the way he lived um, is is what he did. So to us and, and to like my brother, my mom and my dad, like live simply is kind of our, our mantra. Usually my last question is like, what's a, like a, a mantra quote you you're thinking of a lot lately, but it might be live simply. No, let me try to. No, that's a good question. Something that I'm really thinking a lot about. Yeah, the one thing I, this is, you know, might sound Matthew McConaughey of me, but I want to really stop worrying about temporary problems, and that's a struggle for me because if you know, we've talked for Same over more. an hour now. Like no, like it, it, we've talked for over an hour now. You, I think you get a, a, a taste of, of who I am and, and what I do, and. A lot of times I, I can easily get wrapped up in making not things perfect. I don't care about perfection, but not knowing when to stop doing something, right? So like something as simple as like, if I, if I think something will work, like it's going to work, like we are going to make it work. And uh, that breeds anxiety. Like that, uh, that is the breeding ground of worry, of anxiety, of, of everything that you don't want in order to do something. Um, and so because of that, I get tripped up on certain things. So it's one of the things I'm more like, not worrying about temporary problems, understanding like, like what is temporary? Like, what is something that like, is that, is, is this a, a bad week? Like a, let's use corporate America, for example, like if I'm working on a site, like is this just a bad dip that the site's going through or am I doing something that we need to adjust? Right. Like that's a big struggle for me right now that I'm always thinking of like, what is an actual habit that needs to change or what is something that is temporary? That's just probably a result that I can find ways of navigating through it. So that's, and I will say like, I mean, as you can tell probably in my voice, like I don't have a great answer because I'm still working on that, but that 
um, I, I've been thinking a lot about of trying to get better at. Okay. Last question. I promise. What is a habit or behavior that you've changed recently? You think maybe in this spirit or not? So as you know, I'm a very re- routine oriented guy. I will say, I, I think a big thing that I've changed was, uh, and, and again, we talked about this to start, but I used to write right when I woke up. That was the first thing that I did because I, I had the mindset of like, do the most important thing the first part of your day, which to an extent I actually agree with. Um, but what we need to realize is what is the most important time of your day, right? Like where is that peak? So um, my peak was not at at five thirty a.m. I mean it's close to that, but I think I changed changed that because I used to wake up at five thirty and write, and then I would read it again at night. And I'm like, oh my god, this is this is really shitty. So that was a big thing I changed of of just buying into it. Like, okay, writing in the afternoon is okay. Like that, like there's there's nothing wrong with that. It's like um, so that that is actually probably the biggest change. Well, thank you for all of your your wisdom and let me tell you you have an open invitation for round two because we there's a lot more to talk about you got to like half of my notes for for things that is awesome that is no dude let's let's just schedule round two at some point that sounds fun even if you want to do it as like a depending on how you like do your podcast instead of just like another jake kronsky uh like we can talk about certain topics and you can cut them up as saying like hey like obviously, as you know, I have a lot to say about building people's careers. Like you just started your first job. Like there's a lot, like there's a lot that we can talk about that I will say like makes, makes people's careers better. Or we can talk about writing. Like, so if you want to do it by topic, that also makes sense to me. Well, maybe let's uh, talk about that offline. And I think that could be really fun and really valuable selfishly for myself. And then also the main demographic of like 18 to 22 year old college students in new grads. So thank you for taking the time and being so thoughtful in your answers. I really appreciate this was a lot of fun for me. Chris, thank you for having me, man. This was an awesome time. I hope we can do this again soon. And I promise I won't bring as big of a soapbox next time. Don't worry about it. Hey, everybody. Thank you all so much for tuning in. I really appreciate you making it this far and hope you enjoyed that one. As always, you can find links to everything we discussed, show notes, and a lot more like my favorite reads and random writing on my website at chrismcgrory.net. That's C-H-R-I-S-M-C-G-R-O-R-Y dot net. Thanks so much and see you next time.